Well, if you have a Bible in front of you, I do want to encourage you to open it to Psalm 103. We are continuing our mini-series looking at the themes of Advent, but now on the other side of Christmas. And today we are revisiting the theme of love, specifically God's love for us. As you're locating the psalm, I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about how many sermons you have heard in your lifetime. Now, if you grew up in the church, you have no doubt heard hundreds, maybe even thousands of sermons, especially if you listen to additional sermons on a podcast or something like that. But even if you're fairly new to the church, it doesn't take long before the sermons sort of start to accumulate. No, we've been uh, in existence as a church for nearly 10 years now. And I went to our website and took a look and it lists 307 sermons by me. And that doesn't take into account our first year as a church. So you can add 40 something to that number. Some of you have been around the whole time. Now, whether here or elsewhere, you have heard many Sermons. You've heard good sermons and you've heard bad sermons. You have no doubt had that experience where you walk out of church saying, you know, there's nothing like a good sermon and that was nothing like a good sermon, right? You've had sermons that have impacted you and influenced you. You've had sermons that you've gone back and listened to again. But you've also had sermons where you've heard them and you've forgotten about them completely by the time you've walked out the door. But there's another kind of sermon that you've heard. You've heard it many times, in fact. It's the sermon or the sermons that you preach to yourself. It's actually a good practice, provided that the content you're preaching to yourself is good content. The Psalms contain numerous examples of this very thing. So in Psalm 42, as an example... It says this, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. In addressing his soul, the psalmist is preaching to himself. It's sort of the ultimate note to self. And Psalm 103 takes that same approach. Before I read it, I just want to reinforce the importance of preaching to yourself by reading what Martin Lloyd-Jones said as he commented on Psalm 42. He said this, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing the self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul has been repressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. And then Martin Lloyd-Jones went on to say this. He said, the main art in, in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. 
You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? Or why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, with the psalmist, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God. That's such a great word on the importance of preaching to yourself. So let's keep that in mind as we turn now to Psalm 103. And I'm going to read it in its entirety. And this is what it says. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Well, this is one of those bookended psalms or psalm sandwiches, as I like to call them. It begins and ends with the exact same words. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Now, I mentioned the importance of preaching to yourself. And it's interesting that David addresses this entire psalm to himself or to his soul. Now, it's a psalm of praise, but it's a, a, a psalm that, that, that praise is just really a rehearsing for himself of who God is and what God has done. It's all in the third person. Now, there are other psalms where David preaches to himself or speaks to his own soul. 
But this is the only one where the whole psalm is like that. And you can see the difference simply by turning the page and looking at the beginning of Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. It begins the same way. But then it says, O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Much of Psalm 104 is directed towards God. All of Psalm 103 is directed towards David's own soul. So as we consider this psalm and this idea of preaching to ourselves, I want to do so under two headings. And those two headings are God's love for us and our praise of him. So let's begin with the theme of God's love for us. Now, verse 2 gives us sort of the outline for what is to come in the psalm. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Now, we don't know what prompted David to write this psalm. This isn't one of those psalms that contains an inscription that gives us a bit of historical background to it. It's not like Psalm 3 where it says a psalm that David wrote when he was on the run from his son Absalom. So we don't actually know if David was discouraged with the appearance of things as he kind of looked out at the world and and saw all the, the problems of it. If that's what prompted him to write this, even in the midst of that, I need to remember these truths. Or if David was maybe at a high point and he was kind of sitting back like a fat cat, kind of counting his riches and saying, oh, look at all that I have. But whatever the case, he instructs his soul not to forget all the benefits or blessings he has. And then he starts to enumerate them. Now, this idea of not forgetting all of God's blessings and benefits is such an important practice. It's such an important thing for us to do. Just before the Israelites entered the promised land, Moses delivered a series of sermons to them. And one of his major themes had to do with remembering and not forgetting all that God had done for them. So here's what we read in Deuteronomy chapter six. It says, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, the great danger for the Israelites was that they might get to the promised land and forget how they got there, forget how God led them and provided for them and brought them into that place. Deuteronomy chapter eight says something similar. It says, take care lest you forget the Lord by not keeping his commandments and rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And the point Moses was making was that it's easy to forget all that God has done for us. And what David does in this psalm as he preaches to himself or as he speaks to his own soul is a corrective measure against that. It's a corrective measure against forgetting. Now, this is not an exact science, but I've tried to group the benefits David highlights into four categories, all of them beginning with the letter P. So David reminds his soul firstly of all the personal benefits he has experienced. 
Listen again to verses 3 to 5. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So what do I mean by personal benefits? Well, what I mean is that David experienced all of the benefits he recounts here. He starts out by saying that the Lord or telling his soul that the Lord forgives all your iniquity. See, David knew what it was like to experience the forgiveness of God. David knew the difference between living with unconfessed sin and living in the freedom that forgiveness brings. In Psalm 32, he says this, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But then he says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of all my sin. Now, most commentators think that David wrote Psalm 32 after his incident with Bathsheba or his sin with Bathsheba. So he understood what it was like to live under the guilt and under the weight and under the condemnation of all of that. But he also understood the joy and the freedom of living, having been forgiven. David had experience with the other benefits that he mentions in these opening verses. He refers to healing. And we know that David experienced both physical and spiritual maladies throughout his life. He reminds his soul that the Lord is the one who redeems your life from the pit. And how many times did David have experience with that? I mean, his life was constantly in danger. He was constantly on the run from those seeking to destroy him, both before his reign as king and during it. And yet God spared him from that several times. And so he could remind his soul, he's the one, God is the, the Lord is the one who, who has redeemed your life from the pit. He also tells his soul that the Lord crowns him with steadfast love and mercy. And see, David understood that that kind of crown was more significant than the physical crown he wore as Israel's king. And then in verse five, he tells himself or he tells his soul that God satisfies him with good or with good things. Do you know how much of a blessing that is? I mean, being blessed with material things is a blessing. But not everyone who is blessed with material things is satisfied. The book of Ecclesiastes explores the issue of wealth and contentment in numerous places. And one of the things it says is this. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is a vanity. It is a grievous evil. See, David reminds himself that not only has he been blessed with good, but he's been satisfied. As a point of application, I I, I just think it's a good practice for us to rehearse all the personal benefits 
we experience in our relationship with the Lord on a regular basis? Have you experienced God's forgiveness? I mean, have you felt what it's like to be free from condemnation? Have you experienced his healing touch? Have you been spared from some illness or from some other kind of calamity? Have you experienced his steadfast love, the kind that will not leave or abandon you even when others do? Have you experienced renewal? Have you felt your strength be renewed like the youth's? Remind your soul of these things. Preach these truths to yourself. As the words of the old chorus have it, count your many blessings, name them one by one, count your many blessings. You'll be amazed what God has done. David also highlights what I would call practical benefits. And we ought to remember those as well. This is what we see in verses 6 and 7. He says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. See, verse 6 speaks to the way that God works out justice for the oppressed. Now, there are lots of questions about this in our day. What does justice look like? Who is it for? When does it come? Now, the world is a complicated place. I'm not going to pretend to know all of the answers to how God's justice might get worked out in our world. But it's interesting that David makes a connection between God's justice in verse 6 and Moses, or Moses' time in verse 7. Now, the Israelites in Moses' day were an oppressed people. The Israelites spent 430 years as slaves in Egypt. And if you remember the story, you will remember that the story of Moses begins in the book of Exodus with the Israelites enslaved and oppressed. And the people were not just enslaved so that they had to, to, to work under you know, terrible labor conditions. Pharaoh had actually issued a decree that all male children born to the Israelites were to be drowned in the Nile River. And many of them were, but Moses was spared. Now, at this point, the Israelites had no power. What could they do but cry out to God? And that is what they did. So Exodus chapter 2 ends with these words. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Those verses tell us that God heard God remembered, God saw, and God knew. Now, you might wonder, well, what practical help is that? Well, you have to fast forward to Israel's eventual deliverance from Egypt to understand how God worked out his justice. The climax of Israel's deliverance from their slavery in Egypt is seen in two events or two main events. God afflicted Egypt with a series of 10 plagues. The last of those plagues was that every firstborn male in Egypt would die. 
Does that sound familiar? The plague of the firstborn was part of God's justice for what had been done to his people. The second cataclysmic event happened when the Israelites passed through the Red Sea. And if you remember the story, you will remember that after the Israelites passed through the Red Sea, God closed up those waters and the Egyptian army was drowned in the depths of the sea. Does that sound familiar? See, this is how God worked out his justice for the oppressed. And verse seven speaks to the way God has revealed himself shown his acts to Israel. Now I say this is a practical benefit, though lots of people wouldn't think so. Lots of people have their own ideas about what God is like or what they imagine him to be like or what they want him to be like. I like to think of God as this really comforting, non-judgmental being is the kind of thing we're used to hearing. That God's justice might look like what it looked like in the book of Exodus is shocking to many people. But look, here's the practical benefit of how God has revealed himself. God hasn't left us to our own devices in this regard. We don't sort of have to guess what God might be like. He has spoken. He has revealed himself. We're not like the proverbial blind men, all sort of just, you know, grasping a different part of the elephant. God has made himself known to us in his word and preeminently in his son. And that is a benefit you ought to remind your soul of on a regular basis. Oh Lord, I'm so glad you haven't left me to my own devices or just my own thoughts to sort of fumble my way through this. You have made yourself known. Verses 9 to 12 go on to highlight what we call or what we can call the pardoning benefits. Now, verse 8 is worthy of a sermon in itself. It says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We read those same words with slight variations in many places in the Old Testament. So Moses said it this way. He said, the Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In another Psalm, we find these words, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. The prophet Joel gave this same message. He said, return to the Lord your God for... He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. The prophet Jonah was somewhat scandalized by God's grace, but he nevertheless understood it. He said to God, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So let me just ask you, have you reminded yourself, have you reminded your soul of those pardoning truths lately? Have you massaged them into your soul and allowed the pardoning grace of God to be your comfort? Verse 9 then goes on to say this. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. So it's not to say that God doesn't discipline us, but that he disciplines us for a reason and for a season. 
New Testament reminds us several times that God disciplines us for our good. The purpose is corrective and restorative. But even though God disciplines us and we can learn from that and we can grow from that, the only real hope we have is is God's forgiveness. And what a forgiveness that is. Listen again to the way it's described here in verses 11 to 13 or in verses 10 to 13. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Thank God. Nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. See, if we got what we deserved, we'd all be doomed. But we get God's grace instead. Now we're reflecting on God's love for us. So we ought to notice the connection between God's love and his forgiveness. And what this psalm teaches us is that because God's love is so vast, it's as high as the heavens are above the earth. Therefore, his forgiveness is so vast. Our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. I love the way Charles Spurgeon commented on this verse when he said, if sin be removed so far, then we may be sure that the scent, the trace, the very memory of it must be entirely gone. There is no fear of its ever being brought back again. Our sins are gone. Jesus has borne them away. See, this is the good news of the gospel. Now, I shared this when I did the devotional on this psalm back in December, but I remember someone once saying that when God forgives our sin, he casts those sins into the depths of the sea. And then he puts a sign up that says, no fishing. See, I think we have this tendency to go fishing in that sea. We tend to wallow over past sins. And in those moments, what we need to do is we need need to preach the pardoning grace of God to our soul. We need to preach the words of 1 John 1, 9 to ourselves. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's love for us is so great that we've been forgiven and cleansed. God has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. So God's benefits are personal, practical, pardoning, and paternal. Verses 13 and 14 say this. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Now, I know some people have a difficult time with grasping the grace that comes from knowing that God is our father because of their own difficult experiences with their earthly fathers. But these verses remind us of God's tenderness as a father. He shows compassion to his children. Why? Well, because he knows us. He knows our frailty and our weaknesses. He has pity or compassion for us. 
You know, compassion is one of the most important characteristics you can exemplify in your parenting. Sometimes as a parent, you will find yourself repeating yourself multiple times in the same day. Right? I mean, you want your kids to grow and develop into responsible individuals. You want them to learn to put their stuff away. You want them to put their laundry away. You don't want to wake up and find dishes from a late night feast lying on the floor in the living room. When you've told them dozens of times that you don't mind if they have a late night snack after you've gone to bed. But please put your stuff away. It's just hypothetical, right? Sometimes when you see something like that, it's easy to become angry. But sometimes when you see something like that, what you need most is compassion. You need to remember their weakness and that they are still kids after all. Now, this is not an excuse to continue in a pattern of sin because, you know, God will just overlook it. It's just the reminder that like a good parent, God knows our weakness. He knows our frailty. And he has compassion for us. It's not stated in terms of a father-child relationship, but I think these verses from the book of Hebrews are a good parallel. And there it tells us, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, Jesus did something we cannot do. He lived a sinless life. But he has compassion for us. He pleads with the Father on our behalf because he knows our weakness and our frailty. So we ought to take all of these truths, all of these things that David highlights in this psalm, we ought to take these truths and we ought to preach them to ourselves on a regular basis. We ought to let them permeate our very souls. Sometimes we just have to stop and take an inventory of all the benefits we have received in Christ. I think it's a good gospel-centered practice to take a passage like Ephesians chapter 1 and reflect on what it is that we've been given. Just read part of the passage, but it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in, we should be, Holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. We have those things according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So the first thing this psalm teaches us is about God's love for us. And we ought to remind ourselves, we ought to tell our souls 
This is how much God loves you. This is how he has shown his love to you. Second thing the psalm teaches us about is our worship of God. I'm just going to make two quick comments about this. The first one is that genuine worship involves every part of us. Now, I already mentioned the way that the psalm is bookended with that theme. Bless the Lord, O my soul, is how it begins. And bless the Lord, O my soul, is how it ends. At the beginning, it says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Now, there's an entire category of music that we classify as soul music. Webster's Dictionary defines soul music as music that originated in African-American gospel singing, is closely related to rhythm and blues, and is characterized by intensity of feeling and vocal embellishments. Now, even without the definition, most of us know what is meant by soul music. I mean, there's got to be some feeling to it. It can't just sort of be, you know, hitting the right notes or, 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 or playing the right keys. Something that comes from deep within. It comes from our soul. That's how David describes worship as well. When he says, all that is within me, bless his holy name. And the only clarification I would give around this is that when David speaks of the soul or of all that is within him, It's not just emotions that he's referring to. Our hearts and our minds are to be involved in worship. Jesus tells us that we are to love God with the entirety of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I think engaging the mind is a neglected part of what it means to worship with all that is within us. Now, I want to say this in as loving a way as possible. Lots of you do this already. But it wouldn't hurt some of you to take a break from Netflix or to put down some of the mindless fiction you might be reading and pick up a good book on theology once in a while. Engage your mind. Allow the deep truths about God to occupy your thinking. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Second thing I would say about our worship of God is that theology leads to doxology. I should say that theology ought to lead us to doxology. It ought to lead us to worship. That's the fuel of David's worship in this psalm. Now, there are lots of people who study theology as an academic enterprise alone, but you can see that's not David's course. As David reflects on who God is and what God has done, he's caught up in the wonder of it all and can think of nothing else to do but to tell his soul to bless the Lord. So he gives a bit of a theological summary in verses 15 to 19. He says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it's gone and his place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. That's his theology. 
Then after his summary, he starts making application in concentric circles in verses 20 to 22. He says, bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. David just sort of getting bigger and bigger as he makes this application. It's his angels. It's all of his creation. But then instead of expanding the circle out wider, he brings it back to the very center. Bless the Lord, O my soul. It's a little bit like what we read in Romans chapter 11. In that chapter, Paul is ruminating on all the mysteries surrounding God's sovereignty. And then in the middle of all that, he just kind of breaks out in praise and says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. This is what I mean by saying that theology leads to doxology. We start reflecting or as we start reflecting on God's love for us, all that he has done for us. If we really understand that we can't help but being caught up in wonder and worship of our great God. So let's praise him together. Father, we thank you for your great grace, for your love that has been shown to us in tangible, expressible ways. We think of the personal experience we have had with your love, your grace, your steadfast love. We think of the pardon that we have received, the very forgiveness for our sins. And God, as we reflect on those things, our hearts well up with praise to you. And so, God, we seek your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.